Welcome to the Good Shepherd Church podcast. Good Shepherd is a gospel-centered church plant in Southeast Lakeland, Florida, and our vision is to join God's mission to see a glorious city filled with disciples of Jesus who are secure as children of God, connected as the family of God, and engaged as stewards of God's love to their neighbors and beyond. Here you will find sermons and other resources to help root and equip you in your true identity in Christ. We're glad you're here. All right. Morning, everybody. Um, so I told you a story a couple of weeks ago that just exposed some of my own ridiculousness. Um, if you missed it, it was the lawnmower story, and you can look it back up. It was on Easter if you need to. Here's another story on me. It's not nearly as good, though, so don't get your hopes up. But I'm really bad at directions. All my things have to do with driving. My wife has said multiple times, I don't know how you don't get in more accidents than you do. But when, uh, when we lived in Atlanta, if you're familiar with Atlanta, there's a giant circle that goes all the way around it called 285. And... I was in, I don't know, probably first year, second year of college. I'd come back home, and I didn't venture outside of my little North Atlanta suburb bubble much. But for some reason, I had jumped on Interstate 285 and was going somewhere. And instead of jumping on and going, it's a 64-mile loop, by the way, just to get a context. Uh, instead of, and east and west, depending on where you get on, it changes at least I think it does, or it did in my head at the time. And so I got on thinking I was going one way, and I was actually going the other way. And I didn't realize it until I was almost halfway around the circle. I kept looking for my exit. I kept looking for my exit. My exit kept not being there. And by the time I finally figured it out, I just realized, well, I'm just going to have to keep on going. And so all 62 and a half miles or whatever until the exit that should have just been a mile and a half journey ended up being a big loop. Now, back in those days, GPSs were these little boxes. They were black and they had touchscreens that were terrible and they connected to your, uh, either to your dashboard or to your windshield with a little suction cup thing. And I would, uh, but they were also really expensive and they were sort of dorky, so I didn't want one, which is part of my problem. But if I had have had one, and that's only one representation of something that I do often, which is missing turns. Now, I have a GPS that's attached to my phone, as we all do. And you, you all know when you, when you miss that turn, that what does the GPS tell you? Recalculating. Recalculating. And she seems to get louder and meaner every time she says it. And so she recalculates after every time you may miss a turn. There's, there's moments that probably happen more often than you'd like where our hearts go into that same recalculating mode, where, where we, we feel like we missed a turn somewhere, where the, there's something that we've come up against that we're like, how, how did I get here? Where are we going? I thought we were going this way, and I ended up going this way. How, how did I wind up here? And inside, our hearts are going, recalculating, 
recalculating. Where am I? And all this internal angst, anxiety, fear, worry, burden, anger begin to swell. So this is not an uncommon story. If you're familiar, if if you have read through even just a, a couple of the big stories of the Bible, this is a common occurrence where <coughs> excuse me, where God takes you places that you did not expect. And your heart is going insane inside of your body, about to beat out of your chest. Confusion is bogging down your mind. You feel like there's this dark cloud over you. You're not sure which way's up and which way's down. You're not sure where you should go. This is a common occurrence for the saints. And I don't mean just those really fancy great ones. I mean these saints. This is a common occurrence in our lives. So what we're going to look at today is another one of those stories, maybe one of the biggest stories that is also true, one of the biggest stories of how do we orient ourselves when we've come up against something that we cannot conquer. We're lost, we're stuck, we're confused, we don't know where we should go. How do we handle ourselves? How do we handle our hearts? How do we handle our relationships horizontally? And how do we handle our relationship vertically? This is the story of the Red Sea. You may be familiar, you may be unfamiliar, but it is an epic. And, uh, and in the way that C.S. Lewis and others have described it, it is one of the great true myths. So let's read it. Uh, we're going to read the reference in Hebrews because we're still in this ser- series in Hebrews. We're going to read that reference first, and then we're going to read the first 14 verses of chapter Exodus, of Exodus chapter 14. So let's read together. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Which is in reference to Exodus 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, uh, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Remember, they had, they had been uh, released from slavery. They're on the run. They're in the wilderness. They're following this cloud of fire, or pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And here we find ourselves. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh. This isn't Moses saying this. This is the Lord and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. And they said, what is this that we've done? That we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariots and took his army with him. And he took 600 chosen chariots and the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. 
the Egyptians pursued them. All Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and camped by the sea by Pi-Hehiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh grew, uh, drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've brought us out here to die in the wilderness? They're really good at sarcasm. What have you done in order to bring us? Uh, what have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what, you, what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Moses said to them, here it is. Fear not. Stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You must only be silent. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. So, Father, we ask that this would not just be an old, old story from long, long ago. That this would be our story. You were so kind that you have not just given us propositional truth. You've not just given us things to believe, but you've given us things to live into. We are a people of the book. We are a people in the story. And as much as the Israelites faced their own fear and doubt and anger and bitterness and grumbling spirit, we face all of those same things today. And you still show up in power. And you have shown up in even more power than you did in the Red Sea. And so, Jesus, would you be glorified and magnified that our hearts would be settled and hopeful in whatever Red Sea we may be coming up against today. We pray this in Christ. Amen. So that one verse I want to really focus in on, verse 13. There's three things that God tells His people when we feel lost and stuck and confused. Fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord. So let's work through those real quick. Fear not, right? There's plenty to be scared about right here. There's plenty that, that they should be afraid of in some ways. They had just escaped from the biggest superpower in ancient, not just the Near East, but in the whole ancient world at this time. This was the China. This was the Russia. This was the United States. Like this, this is a massive superpower. And it's like you just broke out of jail and you're on the run from an entire country. They had plenty of reason to be afraid. And then not only that, but they've also got these crazy ways that God is showing up for them. There's this giant pillar and it, it smokes during the day and they follow it. And then it catches fire at night so that they can travel both by day and by night. I was thinking, this, they've probably been doing this for about two weeks by the time they get to the Red Sea. And God said, you've got to travel by day and by night. So I don't know if they're like carrying each other on their backs when they're so exhausted they can't walk anymore. I don't know exactly how they did that. But they must have been exhausted by the time they got to the Red Sea. Mentally, 
spiritually, physically, they are just about to buckle. And of course, God doesn't do, God, God never learned that the shortest distance between two places is a straight line. So if you look on a map, where they go, they, they start over here, the Red Sea's kind of down here, where they're going is over here. And so you would think the shortest distance between A and B is to go right here. Where does God take them? He says, you're not ready to go from here to here quite yet. I'm taking you all the way down and all the way up. So they're already confused. We thought we were just going to get out of Egypt and then we were going to have a party and then we're going to show up in the promised land, flown with milk and honey, and we're going to fill ourselves to our heart's content and everything will just be dandy. And that is not anywhere near what the Lord had in mind. Because he has in mind not their comfort, but their faith. That's what's more important, not only to him, but truly to us, if we have eyes to see it. So they're confused. They're following this crazy pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. They're not going the direction they thought they should go. Then just to make it a little more confusing, when they get sort of to the bottom of that basin where the Red Sea is to their south and to their east, they, God says, uh, just kidding, rerouting. And then he spins them around and they go back the other way that they just came. And so they've got to be going, what is happening? Does, does God... He must have lost his GPS. Like, how did this, how did this happen? I thought God was a little smarter than this. I'm not sure who's bringing us out here in the wilderness. Couldn't we just go back? It'd be so much easier if we were back in Egypt. And then not only that, but God rouses Pharaoh. And the, his anger is rekindled. And he comes to his senses, being totally in line with who he always has been, one of the most evil men, in the whole history of the world at that particular point. And he goes, what have I done? I just let all my slaves go. What's going to happen to my economy? What's going to happen to jobs? What's going to happen to my, my whole structure that I've made here is imploding right now. Go get them. And so they saddle up 600 of their finest chariots. This would be like getting every nuclear warhead that you had at the time and aiming it all at one people group. That's the kind of power that they, they have. That's the parallel to the power that ancient Egypt had at the time. They have plenty of reason to be fearful. They have plenty of reason to be internally upset. And so as, as they're stuck in the bottom of this basin with the Red Sea to their south and to their east, with mountains to the north, and with a pursuing giant nuclear warhead-sized army coming at them to the west... They're thinking, we're done. There's no way we're ever going to get out of this. Where are we going to go? God, what are you doing? And here's how he responds. Of all the things he could have said, here's how he responds. Fear not. Fear not. Like that's what you got for us? Fear not. This is not a unique phrase that God uses. Just a couple of examples. Abraham 
is told, very similarly, to leave his home, leave everything he knew, go out into the wilderness, follow God in the process. He was going to give him a son. He was already old. His wife had been barren. They already thought their life was pretty much over. And he said, I'm going to give you a son, and that son is going to make a nation, and that nation is going to be great. And so he does. He gets up, he packs his stuff, he gets his wife and all of his flocks and all of his herds, and he leaves. And he follows God. And then somewhere out in the middle, his wife is still barren. There's still no child. He's still wandering. God, where are you? What are you doing? You've brought me out here, and now you're not showing up. What is his response? Fear not. I will make good on my promise. Fear not. In the same way, Hagar, the Hagar and Ishmael, get cast out into the wilderness. Very similar circumstance again. Wandering around in the wilderness, running out of food, running out of water. God comes to them as she leaves her son Ishmael underneath a tree and walks over here so that she doesn't have to see him die. And God enters the picture, and what does he say? Fear not. Are you catching a theme in who God is and how he works? Mary. Let's fast forward a little bit. Mary is just told that she is pregnant as a teenager. And not pregnant just with any kind of baby, but with God's very son. And this angelic being is standing in front of her, and what's the first thing he says? You're not. There's something in God's character that can say with confidence, fear not. Why? Because he knows where he's taking you. He knew where he was taking Abraham. He knew where he was taking Hagar. He knew where he was taking Israel. And he knows where he's taking you. How do we know? How do we know where God's taking us? Because he lets us in on the story, right? He let, he let Israel in on a little bit of a window of what he was doing. He says in verse 4, you'll see it above my head, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He lets them into what he's doing, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory. That's the point. Whatever happens in our lives, the motivation of God is I will get glory. And you better believe that when he gets maximum glory, you get maximum joy, and the world gets maximum wholeness. It's the best thing we can pursue is his glory. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And so God, like like if you've ever been fishing and you put the worm on the hook and you throw it out there, and if you've ever had one of those underwater cameras where you can watch the bass kind of come up on the, the lure and sort of watch it swimming through and see how satisfying and tasty it looks and then take the bait. This is what he's doing for Pharaoh. Come on, Pharaoh. Come on. Come on out. And <clears throat> even though... Israel thinks they are being trapped. It is actually they who are trapping Egypt. This giant superpower and this little bitty moving nomadic people. So where do you today feel stuck? Where do you feel lost? Where do you feel confused? Where do you feel hopeless? Where do you not know the way out or the way forward? 
What does he say to you today? He says, fear not. How can he say that? Because he has made promises that he has let us in on those promises. Here's a few. I was thinking about Romans 5 just a little bit ago. Verse 3. This should be up here. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been poured out. So, not only that, he begins to open a window of what suffering actually does in your life. And usually those places of turmoil and trauma and confusion are not happy places, but places of hurt and pain and, and real brokenness. But those are also the very places that God loves to do his best work. And we all know this one. So often quoted, and we know that for those who love God, all things will work together for good those who are called according to his purpose. Why does that feel so cliche to say? Because we don't believe it. It feels cliche because we say it all the time. It feels cliche because it gets put on all kinds of, you know, little doilies and old Christian ladies' houses up on the wall. But is it true? It doesn't feel like it. Fear not. Not only does he say, fear not, he also says, stand firm. Now, when you come up against something that is so rattling to you that you can barely get out of bed, the idea of standing firm is not something that feels like it's going to come very natural. In fact, it feels like it's something that is going to be a fight every second. Because the truth that we just read in Romans 5, in Romans 8, and many other places, even in Exodus 14. The truths of Scripture and the stories of Scripture should be enough inside of our souls to settle them. But here's what tends to happen in our minds as we hear, stand firm. What? Stand firm. I mean, God did that for other people, though. Not for me. God did that in in other times. Not this one. Right? God does that for the really holy people, not the screw-ups. Right? There's something that begins to justify that we're just the outliers. We're, I know this, I know the scripture's true. I know that what God says and his promises will happen. We sing about it. But do we experientially believe it? Can we walk that out and stand firm when life is falling apart? Verse 11, Israel said the same thing. Is it because there is no graves in Egypt that you have taken us all the way out here to die in the wilderness? Do you remember what had just happened for Israel? They just had the first Lord's Supper. They just had the first Passover. They just had the the first table set before them where they were seeing and experiencing the great redemption of God where they, were, they had huddled in their homes while the great angel of death passed over, and they were alive. And not only were they alive, but they were out. 
They were free. They had seen the salvation of the Lord. And yet, standing firm felt real hard right now. And instead, what was so easy for their hearts and what's so easy for ours is to grumble, to complain, to grow bitter and sullen and silent and cold. Paul Tripp says it this way. Every moment of grumbling, in fact, is grumbling against God. You've never had a neutral grumble in your life. Your grumbling is deeply theological, and it evidences a dissatisfaction with the sovereign plan of Almighty God. It is quite possible for you to sing on Sunday morning, whatever my God ordains is right, and give your heart and your mouth to grumbling before you're even back home from the service. Does that ring true? Stand firm. How do we do that when every part of us internally just wants to buckle under the weight of whatever pressure we find ourselves under? And it can be something as small as losing your keys. It can be something as big as losing a loved one. The call on your life is still the same. Love God. Love others. Not blame God and blame others, which is what's so much easier, so much more comfortable inside of our inward-turned hearts. And so I thought about this as a, a parallel image that Jesus brings out right at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said all kinds of things like, don't be anxious, don't fear, don't worry. If you ask your father for something, is he not a good father like we saying? Will he not give you what you ask for? Look at the sparrows. Look at the flowers. Look how beautiful and great array they are. Look how they are taken care of by their creator. How much more important are you? And at the very end of that litany, at the very end of that sermon, he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds beat, and it fell. And the fall was very great. So he's just set up for us. This is what standing firm looks like. It looks like building your life on reality. Building your life on truth. And what is worth, what is truth? Your word. God is truth. So standing firm then is active. Fearing not and standing firm is active. But it also feels very passive. Because so far all God's told me to do is something inside of me. The only thing outside of me that he's told me to do is to stand here. And so here you've got Egypt coming from this way, mountains up here, sea over here, and here's what he says. Stand there. And he tells you the very same thing. Because this transitions perfectly into his third encouragement. Not only do we fear not, not only do we stand firm, but here's how we can do those other two things. Third, see. While you're standing, while you're looking, see. See the salvation of the Lord. 
see how he has worked and take that as proof that he will continue to do the same thing. But how do you do standing firm? How do you, how do, you do what he says the next verse to kind of summarize everything in verse 14? The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. How do you do standing? How do you do nothing? How do you do waiting? There's an activity that standing still allows you to do that you can't do when you're on the move. Right? It is so much easier. This is why Sundays were created, by the way, for you to stop and look around. For you to stand at your back door and look at the trees and go, wow, I never noticed how beautiful that was. For, for you to stand in your kitchen at your dinner that you're making and say, wow, God made all of these ingredients that could come together in such a way that I could enjoy this. Isn't he amazing? God made you to stop because only when you stop can you see? So that what it means to stop and what it means to be active feel like oxymorons, though. Right? My kids and I just watched The Sandlot for the first time. Great movie. A few more cuss words than I was remembering. Uh, but it's an epic. It's an epic movie. It's so good, right? And you remember the scene where they're, kind of, they're in the tree house, the ball has gone over the fence, and they're sitting there going, oh, how are we going to get this ball? I don't know. And they come up with all these crazy ideas. And as they're sitting there, um, the, the character named Ham, right, the one who points like Babe Ruth, and he's kind of, you know, the, the bigger, larger than life, or the big mouth guy. And he says he's, he's got a, a little steak, and he's roasting a marshmallow over a candle. And, and then he looks at Smalls, who's kind of the main character in the movie, who knows nothing about anything. And he says, hey, you want us more? And then Smalls kind of looks all confused, and he says, well, how, how can I have some more? I haven't had anything yet. And then the line that everybody quotes from all of Sandlot, you're killing me, Smalls! It seemed like this oxymoron to him. How can I have s'more if I haven't had any yet? He didn't get it. And in the same way, the act of standing still and seeing the Lord does not feel very helpful or active. It feels like an oxymoron. If I'm going to do, if something is going to happen, I'm going to be the one to do it. This story throws that out the window. This story debunks that as a lie from the pit of hell. Because before we can move, God has to move. That's not just true in salvation. That's true in every part of life. Because the Exodus story is the story of salvation. The Exodus story is our great release from the idolatry that we just talked about. Our slavery, our worship to something that cannot satisfy us but will only promise many things and give absolutely nothing. It is our release from the power and the penalty of sin through the great substitute, the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus. And in that substitution, we are then set free. Set free to do what? Set free to fear not. 
set free to stand firm, and step, set free to see his salvation. And this works in two ways. First, we've got to look backwards. In order to move forwards in faith, we, the first move is to look backwards at the cross. The first move is to be reminded a greater act than, than the Red Sea has happened, and that has happened in the cross. The reconciling of God and man has happened at the cross. And so we look back and we're reminded, if God did that, if God saved me from sin, death, and hell, then I'm pretty sure he can handle whatever we got coming. So first, the move is to look back. What has God done? He's done much, but especially, look what he's done at the cross. And then we have this journey ahead of us. And if you've lived very long in the Christian way, if you have followed Jesus for any amount of time, you know that what you thought about your life was A is here and B is here. Happiness is here and here's where I am and I know exactly how I'm going to get there. So God, if you'll just bless that path, then that'll be great and then I'll love you forever. Here's what happens instead. Uh, It may take your whole life of journeying and wandering and lamenting, and praying, and hoping, and standing firm, and fearing not, and looking back, and looking forward. Because when Israel moves is only after God has worked, and God parts the Red Sea, and they turn towards it, a way that they never even saw possible, and they start to walk towards it. And as you can probably imagine, if you've seen the Prince of Egypt movie, they do a pretty good job at capturing all of this, right? So the the seas part, and you see the fish, and the jellyfish, and the sharks, and whatever else is in that water, and they're all kind of darting by, and there are these giant walls of water on both sides. Just put yourself in that experience for a minute. You know, maybe this is just a hurricane. Maybe this is just a really strong wind, and it's about to crash in on us, and we're just totally insane but they respond to what the Lord has done. So what does it look like? What does faith waiting on the Lord look like? It looks like waiting for Him to move, and then as He does, just take a step. You may not know what's on the other side of that Red Sea. Just take a step. And then wait for that next bit of Red Sea to be open, and then take another step. And that may be all He gives you. It may be this cloudy mess in front of you, this mist that you can't see through in these chaotic waters that seem like the only reality that you can experience. And yet you take another step. This is the life of faith. This is following Jesus. It is not glorious, or it is not glamorous, but it's glorious. So to close, uh, one of my favorite worship songs. I'm going to see if I can get through it without crying. Uh, It's called Jesus on my cross have taken. This describes what the combination of waiting and walking by faith look like. Read this along with me. You don't have to read it out loud. That'd be weird. Jesus on my cross have taken all to leave and follow thee. Here it goes already. Excuse me. Destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition. 
All I've sought or hoped or known, yet how rich is my condition. God in heaven are still my own. Go then, earthly fame and treasure. Come disaster, scorn and pain. In thy service, pain is pleasure. With thy favor, loss is gain. I have called thee, Abba, Father. I have stayed my heart on thee. Storms may howl and clouds may gather. All must work for good for me. Soul, speaking to your own soul, then know thy full salvation. Rise o'er sin and fear and care. Joy to find in every station. Something still to do or bear. Here it is. Think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what Father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee. Child of heaven, canst thou repine? And here's the walk. Haste thee on from grace to glory, arm by faith, wing by prayer, heaven's eternal days before thee. God's own hand shall guide us there. <clears throat> Soon shall close thy earthly mission. Soon shall pass thy pilgrim days. Hope shall change to glad fruition. Faith to sight. Prayer to praise. Father, we ask. Whatever Red Sea Road you're calling us to walk right now, that we would not get ahead of you. Would you, by your Spirit's power, your Comforter and your Keeper, would you help us to fear not? Would you help us to stand firm? And most of all, would you give us a gospel attentiveness that we could stop and see the salvation of the Lord? And as we do, that that would give us the kind of courage and gritty hope that nothing in this world can take. that we could walk out of these doors and take that next step into the scary Red Sea that may be right outside that door. Thanks that we don't know everything, but thanks that we know the one who does. We pray in your name. Amen.